0: You're listening to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. I record more than 100 episodes of this show per year, which is kind of a lot. Putting out two new episodes per week means I'm constantly thinking about what's next. When's the next recording date? Who's my next guest? What are the topics we're going to cover? And while all of that is obviously important for keeping the show running, it's also important to step back sometimes and look at everything you've done. And as I look back on all of the amazing guests and conversations we've had on the show, I've begun to curate a list of the essential listens These are the shows that can really be a sexual revelation to people because they get them to think about their own sexuality or to understand their own sexuality in a new and different way. So while we're obviously going to keep putting out fresh content for you, we're also going to go back every now and then and check out one of those essential listens. And we're going to start today by going back to my interview with award-winning author Emily Nagoski, which came out all the way back in episode number 48. Emily wrote the New York Times bestselling books, Come As You Are and The Come As You Are Workbook. She is also co-author of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. In our original conversation, Emily and I did a long segment on the theme of sex on the brain, with the goal being to help people understand the brain mechanisms that underlie sexual response in a way that can help them to better understand their sexuality and why it might be different from that of their partner. So today, we're going to revisit Sex on the Brain. And if you like what you hear, go back to episode 48 for the full conversation, where we also get into some of Emily's favorite sex and relationship tips for experiencing more pleasure, rekindling the spark, reducing stress, and improving body image. So let's talk Sex on the Brain. We're going to get into it right after the break. If you're a fan of this show, then I know you're hungry for sexuality knowledge. But if you're also looking to find a community of like-minded, sex-positive professionals, check out the Sexual Health Alliance. Shaw connects you with world-class experts and an active group of passionate, fun, and welcoming students. Shaw is at the forefront of sexuality education and hosts monthly live events, both online and in-person, with students from all over the world and from all types of backgrounds. They come together to learn, travel, connect, and sometimes form friendships. So, podcast fans, continue advancing your sexuality knowledge, have fun, and meet fantastic people in the process at Sexual Health Alliance. You can find their upcoming events and online certification programs at SexualHealthAlliance.com. Hi, Emily, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast.
1: Hello, I'm so excited to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. I have read your work and followed you for a really long time. So it's a thrill to finally have the chance to meet you (laughs) and, and catch up. So to get started, I always like to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about their professional journey. So how did you get into the wild, wonderful world of sex education in the first place?
1: I'm glad you asked this question because nobody has the same path. And I got here by accident, absolutely. As a big nerd in high school, surprise. And so I knew when I got to college that I was gonna be going to grad school for something. I had no idea for what, but I knew I needed some volunteer work on my resume to make me look like a good candidate for grad school starting like the very first semester. So a guy on my floor was pre-med and he said, come be a peer health educator with me. And I was like, I like health, why not? So I did. I got trained to be a peer health educator, but my favorite part was the sex education. You know, we got trained to do stress and nutrition and physical activity and all that kind of stuff, sleep. But my favorite thing was the sex education. Condoms, contraception, and consent basically is what it was. And in addition to the prevention work I was doing, I gradually added sexual violence response and like, answering a crisis hotline and accompanying survivors to the hospital for examinations. And though my degree is in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy, and I do love the brain stuff and I still use it all the time, the work I was doing as a sex educator made me like who I am as a person in a way that none of my Academic work, even the research I was doing in a neuropsych lab, none of that made me feel whole in the way that seeing someone's life change right before my eyes with a little bit of sex education could. So that's the path I chose. Got a master's degree in counseling with the idea that I was going to be a therapist. I actually was supervised by Cindy Graham and John Bancroft at the Kinsey Institute sex clinic that existed at the time, which is one of those experiences I will spend the rest of my life trying to deserve. Like it was so, it was life changing, that experience. But part of the way it changed my life is it taught me that I am not a therapist by temperament. (laughs) I am an educator. I, I don't have the magical thing where people, you can sit in a room and go, mm-hmm. hmm, tell me more about that. What was that like for you? I, like, I, I don't have it, but I am a woman who enjoys being in charge of stuff. And so I went on to get a PhD still at Indiana in health behavior in what is now the School of Public Health. And I was teaching a class called Women's Sexuality at Smith College, which is the alma mater of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. So imagine you've got 187 future Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and my favorite, Julia Child like pushing you really hard, challenging you to be the best teacher you possibly can to justify what they're prone to hear as essentialism when you talk about biology and be like, no, let's put the biology in context. So this like really intense semester. uh, At the end of it, my last question on the final exam was, just tell me out of all the science, what's one important thing you learned? And more than half of my 187, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Julia Child, they said, I learned I'm normal. Just because I'm different from other women doesn't mean I'm broken. And so that was when I was grading my final exams. You probably have this experience. You're sitting in your office grading your final exams. You know, it's not usually like this. I was grading with tears in my eyes, feeling like something really important had happened in the class. And that's the day I decided to write Come As You Are. And a mere four and a half years later, and now here I am.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. I can relate to so much of what you said because I'm also an accidental sex educator. You know, it was nothing I ever planned to do. Also, took me about four and a half years to write my book, and I get that response of this made me feel normal for the first time. A lot from students, from readers of my work, and it's such an important thing. that It's what motivates me and, and keeps me going and makes me realize that my work has a positive impact on others because most of us just never got the sex education we needed or deserved and to have folks who can go out there and, and fill in those gaps and give people that, that feeling of I'm normal for the first time in my life. It's really powerful. So I appreciate the work that you do and your commitment to it and your awesome and amazing books. So speaking of which, let's dive into that. Something you talk a lot about in your books and in the talks that I've seen you give is the dual control model of sexual response. And I'm a huge fan of it because I think it really helps us to understand why there's so much individual variability across people in sexual response. And this model was developed by a couple of Kinsey Institute researchers a few decades ago But you really helped to popularize it and bring it into the mainstream with Come As You Are. And I just love the way you describe it because you make it so accessible. So can you tell us a little bit about it for people who might not be familiar with this model? How does it work?
1: Yes. And the history is, like, there's a reason why it's income as you are. John Bancroft was one of my clinical supervisors, and Eric Janssen was one of my dissertation co-chairs. And they, together with Eric in the lead, developed the dual control model with the shocking idea, what if how sex works in the brain is how everything else works in the brain, right? With pairings, couplings of excitatory impulses and inhibitory impulses, accelerators and brakes, the gas pedal and the foot brake. And they started doing survey research and they realized when they did the analysis that there really are separate processes, one that responds to sex-related stimuli and then one that responds to potential threats. And it's the idea of the brake that I find really transforms people's understanding. So I remember the day I learned about it. And like my brain exploded and I haven't been able to find it ever since. Like everything (laughs) has been different since that day in 1999 is how long I have been teaching this stuff. It's that important to me. Basically, it's called the dual control model. So there's two parts you can tell by the name. And the first part is the accelerator or the gas pedal, which notice it's running all the time, noticing anything sex related in the environment, everything that you see, hear, smell, touch. Taste, or crucially, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as okay. So that's a sex-related stimulus, and then it sends the turn-on signal that many of us are familiar with, and it's functioning all the time, including right now. Here we are talking about sex. You might be thinking of like what counts as a sex-related smell? Hmm. And the fact that you're having that thought counts as just a little bit of turn on signals. There's a little bit of turn on happening right now. And at the same time, fortunately, in parallel, your break is noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. (laughs) Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat and it sends the turn off signal. So your level of arousal at any given moment is the balance of how much the ons are turned on and how much the offs are turned off. And what's so powerful in addition to recognizing that people vary in the sensitivity of their brakes and accelerator mechanisms and also in what those mechanisms respond to in the world but also when people are struggling even though most of the like mainstream sex advice is very focused on like add stimulation to the accelerator it turns out when people are struggling it's rarely because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator it's cuz there's too much stimulation to the brake And it is so powerful for people to know that like they are normal and healthy, but there's a lot happening in their life, like stress, depression, anxiety, overwhelm, exhaustion, repressed rage. We've all got it. Body image stuff, trauma stuff, relationship, strife. You're just literally, you're worried about the last dish in the sink. That stuff is hitting the brakes. And if you can get rid of that stuff, your brake will be freed up. And then your accelerator can do what it's already doing.
0: And I think that's beautifully described. And I think explains why this is so important for understanding how, if you want to improve your sex life, what you need to do, you know, it's usually not just changing one little thing, you know,
1: I wish it were as simple as like lingerie and candles and role play and porn, like that would be so much simpler for people. But it turns out it's, you know, improve your relationship with your own body enhance the erotic trust in your relationship, heal your trauma and the sex negative messages that you were raised with.
0: It's a lot. And, you know, as you're talking about all of this, it's got me thinking about this whole pandemic situation that we've been living in and how that's affected people's sex lives and relationships. And I've conducted a lot of research on this. And one of the things that really struck me is that people were all over the map in terms of what happened in the bedroom during this really challenging time. You know, some people said they didn't experience any changes. Other people totally lost desire and sexual behavior practically disappeared. And yet others experienced increases in desire and became more sexually active than ever. And so it's got me thinking about, you know, how the dual control model can potentially help to explain why this situation and why stress has these divergent effects on people's sex lives. You know, I have to imagine that the people who experienced the most negative impact were the ones who were probably really high on inhibition. You know, that break was just locked. And for the people who didn't experience much change or maybe where their sexual activity levels actually increased, I have to suspect they're probably higher on excitation and low in inhibition. And so... For these people, if they have more time on their hands, that might create more sexual opportunities. So what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think that variability in the sensitivity of the brakes and accelerator mechanisms and also... Variability in life history, which changes how your brain responds to different stimuli. We know that people who had an existing history of trauma, abuse, or neglect, a high adverse childhood experiences score, for example, were more adversely impacted by the pandemic because their brain was already ready to recognize the danger of the situation. And so like the brakes get slammed on and their anxiety level is higher and the trauma impact of the pandemic is higher for those folks. So part of it is just the inherent sensitivity of the mechanism. Part of it is how your life history has changed it. And also part of it is the circumstances that you're currently in because people were impacted really differently by the pandemic. For me, being mostly at home with my husband, who is my favorite person on earth. Like I was locked in the house with my best friend and my dogs. Like, oh no, how terrible. (laughs) I, I was stressed out because as a person with a public health background, I was constantly like looking at the numbers and doing epidemiology stuff in my head. And like, I was stressed out because of that. But my life, no one that I love died. Only a handful of people that I know got sick. Only one person that I know was hospitalized. I didn't lose my job and neither did my husband because we are both (laughs) self-employed. Can't lose our jobs unless we fire ourselves, which we (sighs) might do one day. That's another story. But so like that pandemic story is not the same as someone who you and or your spouse lost a job. You and or your spouse are not able to let the kids go to daycare or school and had to be parenting all the time. Plus, there was all the social unrest that happened during the pandemic. There was, like, violence by cops against Black people in America and mass waves of protests. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that there was also the, I don't know, attempt to overthrow democracy. Small shit. Small shit happening. Does that create a context where your brain really is inclined to interpret a sensation as fun, safe, sexy, and pleasurable? Or does it create a context where your brain is vigilant and on high alert kind of all the time? If you're paying attention, it it was stressful and hitting the brakes. But there was a lot of variability in people's experiences. And so it makes sense to me that a whole bunch of people would have had their sex lives drop away. I remember, though, at the beginning of the pandemic... There were I, I kept getting asked, was there going to be a pandemic baby boom? Mm-hmm. And I was like, have you read Come As You Are? <laughs> Do you know about the dual control model? Because like it's context and it's the breaks. And no, people are not going to feel more interested in having sex with a person whom they cannot escape.
0: <laughs> yep so true. Yeah, I got that question a billion times as well. And, you know, if they would have just come to us first, you know, we could have saved a lot of (laughs) inaccurate headlines from going out there. But since we're on the subject of sex on the brain, another topic I often hear you talk about is this idea of arousal Mm non-concordance, which is basically the fancy scientific term for there being a mismatch between your genital arousal and your psychological feelings of arousal. And we know that people of any gender, any sexual orientation can experience this mismatch at times, but we know from the research that it tends to be more common among women than it is among men. That they're more likely to be in that situation where maybe they have a genital response, but they don't feel aroused, or they might see that arousal as unwanted. And it's also more likely for women to be in a situation where they feel aroused, but they're not having the genital response accompanying Mm -hmm. it. So why is that? Why does this arousal non-concordance happen? And why are women more likely to experience it?
1: We don't know why. So I spent my pandemic doing a, an update and revision of Come As You Are. And one of the things that happened in the science between when it was originally, when it went to press in 2014 and 2020, was that it became clearer and clearer that really it's straight women for whom this is true, less than for women who identify as anything other than straight. And also, there's a lot of individual variability. So for some women, they have quite a strong match, generally between their genital response and their level of experienced arousal. And then for some people, they just don't. And there there are like little inklings in the research of beginning to understand how variability and sensitivity of the brakes and accelerator may be involved. And as a population, I hate saying sentences like this out loud because it's too easy to turn it into. Well, men just want sex more than women do. And women are more inhibited than men are. And that is not what I'm saying. The main thing to know is that there is a lot of variability across populations, but if you average the scores of accelerators, the sexual excitation system of 100 men, that, that average score will be higher than the average score of 100 women on the same thing. And if you average together the scores on the inhibitory factors survey of 100 men, that score is going to be lower than the average score of 100 women. That just because a score is true about a population doesn't mean a score is true about any specific individual within that population. I'm not five foot four. The average height of American women is five foot four. Am I abnormal? No. The average is not a description of the individuals in the population. So, but I say that because, uh, some of the predictability of this happens more to women than it does to men might be because of population level differences and sensitivities of the accelerators and the brakes. Okay, so first of all, no one that I've ever talked to about this has been like, so you're saying that men have really quite a very significant relationship, a correlation between their genital response and their perceived arousal. That's really like, why... Why are they like that? Why aren't they more like the women with with less reliable correlation between their genital risk? Nobody says that. Everybody's like, "So what's wrong with women?" Which that all that right there is the patriarchy. And that's the reason why people struggle to understand it is because we're basically like because of the ugh, patriarchy, um we consider men to be the default And everybody else is just a broken version of a man. So the extent to which a woman is different from what's true for men is the extent to which women are broken. If you're different, you are broken. So I think if we can expand our acceptance of the reality that this happens and everyone who has ever been a 13 year old with a penis knows that like if the wind blows in the wrong direction, you get an erection. If you're sitting in the back of the bus and there's a vibration, you get an erection. If your teacher's shirt moves, you get an erection because you have all this testosterone and your body's like, I don't know what to do. Like that's arousal nonconcordance. When you want to get an erection at night when you're doing things and the erection's not there, that's arousal nonconcordance. And then you wake up the very next morning with an erection when it's nothing but an inconvenience. That is arousal nonconcordance when we can normalize it for everybody we make space for the ways that it happens to people who are deemed atypical and actually they're totally normal and we take away the the most dangerous thing about arousal nonconcordance is when and we use it as an excuse for taking advantage of people well you, you said no but your body said yes bodies don't say yes <laughs> Bodies say, okay, so that's a sex-related stimulus. And the person says, sure, okay, sex-related stimulus. And now let's put it into a larger context and assess if it's wanted or liked, because those are not the same thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all very well explained and put. And the way that you frame it, I think, is really important for shifting the the narrative and the conversation. We all experience arousal, non-concordance at different points. And, you know, what what's happening genitally isn't always a reflection of how you're feeling psychologically in that moment. And we know that, you know, for example, when we sleep at night, whether you have a penis or a clitoris, you experience... Four to five erections per night as you cycle in and out of REM sleep, right? And so, you know, that's also another arousal non concordant situation, right?
1: There are studies of nocturnal tumescence in, in people with clitoris.
0: Yes, the same exact thing happens.
1: I always figured it was probably true, but I had never seen that. Oh, that's so exciting to know.
0: Yes, you know, morning wood is for everyone. So. <laughs> All the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, with the, the dual control model and understanding the accelerator and the brake, how can that help people to improve their sex lives? How can having a better understanding of your brain on sex help to unlock more pleasure?
1: I mean, the simplest way is just to start with like an off the top of your head list of what are some things that activate my accelerator? What are the things that my brain interprets as sex related stimuli? And for some people, this is going to be very easy and they can like just immediately know it is this smell, this touch, this taste, this sound, this person. Someone I talked to yesterday was like the forearms of this partner I am with now, not the forms of anybody else I've ever been with. But for some reason, this person's forearms. Sex-related stimulus, and then and then you make a list of the things that hit the brakes. And as Ian Kerner writes in his brand new book, which he writes about your book a lot, by the way, you know, I don't know <laughs> if you does. read it, but like you're like all over it. For a lot of people, the the list of accelerator hitting things is just a few things, and then your list of things that hit the brakes is like you could spend four days just like listing the stress the overwhelm the kids the your parents your family your whole spending the whole first two decades of your life being lied to about what sex is for and who you're supposed to be as a sexual person and you're not allowed to experience pleasure and trauma and neglect and all that stuff and sort of the idea that love is dangerous if you got taught that in your family of origin so like it's just goes on forever I wish it were like as simple as that. And then you just start like addressing the stuff on your breaks list. Unfortunately, there is another level of complexity, which is that the way our brains interpret any stimulus varies depending on the context. And there is now a really rich body of research mostly on non-human mammals, but also a little bit on humans now about the ways our brains change our perception of a sensation based on the context. My favorite example is tickling. I know tickling is not everybody's favorite, but if you're already like in a hot and heavy, turned on, playful, aroused state with a certain special someone whom you really trust and enjoy, and they tickle you, that your brain could easily interpret that as playful and good and lead to other things. But if you're in the middle of a fight with that exact same certain special someone and they tickle you, not, not so much. More, more like you want to punch him in the face a little bit, right? And it's the same certain special someone. It's the same tickling sensation on the same part of your body. But the way your brain interprets that sensation is opposite because of the context. And there's all nerdy stuff about the affective keyboard of the nucleus accumbent shell, blah, blah, blah. But the main thing is to know that it's normal that if your partner touches you in that special way, in that special spot today, and you're in a great state of mind and so your knees melt, they might touch you in the same way in the same spot tomorrow when you're feeling like stressed and overwhelmed. And instead of your knees melting, you're like, could you just go do the laundry? That's normal because our response to any sensation depends on the context in which we experience it. So, Step two, after you make the basic list of like, here's what hits my accelerator, here's what hits my brakes, is what are the contexts in which my brain is most likely to interpret a sensation as safe, fun, sexy, and pleasurable? For most people, people vary tremendously. Of course, there's no saying that too often. People vary so much from each other and they change across their lifespan. But for most people, it's usually going to be a context that is full of trust and affection. And not least, it's explicitly erotic.
0: Everything you just said there is why you can't give one-size-fits-all sex advice, right? Because everyone's different and they change. Yeah, and that's also why you can't just say at the beginning of a relationship, we're going to establish sexual compatibility and we're good to go. No, you need to focus on maintaining sexual compatibility because your body changes, what feels good during sex changes, what you want out of sex, what you need, what you're physically able to do, all of these things change. And so it's this ongoing conversation and it's also, you know, trying different things at different points in your life might work better for you, right? Yeah. Yes. So...
1: Yeah, when the kids leave the house all going to be different
0: <laughs> well it, it's certainly going to be different and for better or for worse depends on the situation for better or worse
1: <laughs> right but it's going to change because the context changed in a huge way
0: absolutely so can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and maybe get a copy of one of your books or all of them
1: the books are available wherever books are sold. There's Come As You Are. I call it Come As You Are Red because the revised version has red banners at the top and bottom. So that's the one you want to look for. There's a little badge on that says revised and updated. It's Come As You Are is really good, but the new one is so much better. There's also the Come As You Are workbook. If you're like, I don't want to read a hundred thousand words of affective neuroscience and stories. I just want to tell, just tell me what to do that's what the workbook is for. And then there's Burnout, which is a book I co-authored with my identical twin sister, Amelia, which again is available, I guess, kind of anywhere. You can get them signed if you order them through my local bookstore in East Hampton, Massachusetts, Book Moon Books, if you want to go to that webpage to get a signed copy. And starting in 2019, my sister and I have been making a podcast called the Feminist Survival Project. It was the Feminist Survival Project 2020, and we started it in November of 2019, thinking this is gonna be a rough year with the election. There might even be a woman candidate, and that's gonna be uncomfortable. We had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And we have continued it because it has continued to be uh, important for listeners, but also it's really helpful for us to make something that we feel like is making it easier for people who share our vision of the world to get through the vicissitudes of, you know, life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for all the work that you do in helping us to get through life a little better and maybe make our sex lives a little better at the same time. Keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, sexandpsychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. LayMiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.